Hi everyone, and welcome back to Decrypt. I'm your host, Nick Rice, and today I'm delighted to be joined again by Stina Connor. Stina, who is now a frequent flyer with our podcast, is from her CTI team. She's based in Copenhagen, and Stina, it's fantastic to have you back on board with us. Thanks, Nick. Really good to be back. And joining Stina is none other than the head of our cyber response practice globally, Jayanne Pereira. Jay, it's great to have you on the podcast for the first time, but I'm sure it's going to be one of many, many appearances. How are you doing today? Yeah, really well, Nick. Thanks for having me on. All right. Well, guys, it's fantastic to have you both here at a time when we are now looking at the one year anniversary of the beginning of the conflict in Ukraine. And as you both know, and as all of our listeners know, this is a conflict that has shaped the security and risk environment across the various domains that we support our clients in, but also that all of our clients are operating around. And it is a conflict that's been marred by a huge amount of loss and a huge amount of damages in the country, but outside of its boundaries too, in the physical and the digital space. And in today's episode of Decrypt, we want to take a look at what has happened over the past year in the digital domain of the war in Ukraine. And importantly, where do we anticipate the conflict to move and its longer term implications on the cyber threat and risk landscape? landscape that every organization will be facing. As we are recording this, we still don't know what the outcome of the conflict will be, and there will be a host of different control risks, thought leadership, and analysis coming out in the next few weeks focused on the actual nature of the conflict. But perhaps to kick us off, Stina, it would be great to hear from you, and you've been tracking the materialization of the cyber elements of this war since its inception, what has actually happened? I think from the start, what we have seen is that Russia has used cyber tools to support kind of tactical military objectives. I think that underpins uh, most of the activity that we've seen within Ukraine. So ranging from that kind of suite of disruptive and destructive malware that, that Russia has launched um, as part of this conflict, uh, as well as the the more um, intelligence gathering focused activity, which has also been there from the start. Really, that's been the overarching objective of the activity that we've seen in Ukraine with some very early successes, both prior to actually uh, February, where we saw a number of attacks leading up to February and, and 24th February, but also in the very conjunction with the, the invasion where particularly we saw attacks on, on Ukrainian communications, uh, on Vsats, uh, that also, of course, had, had spillover effects. So that's been the kind of trends that we, we have seen in terms of, of that conflict element uh, within Ukraine. Uh, so very much focused on uh, degrading the Ukrainian response, um, but also very much aligned with developments within the conflict itself. And I think, you know, when we start looking towards what have we learned or what can we expect going forward, I think that's a key takeaway as well to track how cyber activity has supported the kinetic activity that's been going on in, in Ukraine. One of the questions that continues to come up in a lot of the client conversations we're having all over the world is, and certainly that we expected at the onset of this conflict, was the big boom. 
at the very beginning of the conflict and throughout the first phases of the conflict and still to this date, everyone was asking, when are we going to see catastrophic failures of critical infrastructure from a cyber attack? When are we going to see potential loss of life? And if you look at the precedent of other large-scale conflict-related cyber attacks or even at a geopolitical level, you know, what we saw with with um, the Sandboard team in the past, Black Energy across Ukraine in the past, what we saw in, in Saudi Arabia from Iran in the past, that never happened or did it? And if so, why wasn't it communicated more broadly? There is a, a point here around what we have seen in Ukraine and what we haven't seen that we did expect to your point. This kind of, and I think there were different elements to this as well in terms of expectations. So one expectation was we'll see a big boom in Ukraine. The other one was we'll see a spillover. So a, a kind of an attack that really impacts way beyond Ukraine and, and, and has kind of severe uh, implications for, for other organizations. And I don't think, you know, we haven't seen either of these events. I think when we look at the conflict, and this is, I guess, one of the key lessons learned as well from the conflict to date and where cyber has been within that framework is that cyber has been there to support kinetic activity. But if if there is an easier way to target, an easier way to 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 damage communications or to damage energy infrastructure or or to kind of degrade the opponent, if you're in a situation where those weapons and those those tactics are available to you, which it is in this this instance, then cyber may not be the primary means of of doing that. Uh, so I think that's one of the, the reasons why we haven't seen necessarily cyber being the primary way of disrupting some of these key key assets. But I think also the resilience on the Ukrainian side has been over expectations, certainly. Um, a number of these kind of the, the, the malware families that have been, been targeting Ukraine have been detected. The, the attacks have not been successful. And that is down to concerted efforts to also implement a level of, of defense in when it comes to, to that cyber domain. Right. So this is a really interesting point. And Jay, it'd be fascinating to get your take on it from actually responding to, to incidents that were uh, either committed by groups that then got affiliated with one side of the conflict in Ukraine or alternatively during the midst of of, of, of the war itself. And, you know, this is a very broad question, but do you see a trend wherein organizations are more ready? Now, and obviously in Ukraine, the specifics of having had to deal with these issues for a long time is a bit different, but, but keen to hear your take on the broader landscape. We had a lot of fear at the beginning of this, this conflict when we were speaking with our clients, not just actually responding to incidents that were occurring that may have turned into something much more um, insidious and painful for them. But actually, when it came to training and exercising as well, the big question was, well, what should we be worried about? And a lot of, I think, the theoretical posturing at that point was thinking about, are we going to see WannaCry? Are we going to see NotPetya? Are we going to see this sort of big spillover style attack where something that is essentially deemed for military purposes is actually then either repurposed or accidentally spills into the rest of the market. And, and we haven't seen that. And I think Stina made a really good point. Part of the reason we haven't seen sort of these large scale attacks or we don't notice them as much is not necessarily because these attacks haven't been occurring or there hasn't been intrusion attempts, but actually I do think to some extent there have been improvements in um, security infrastructure. 
And I think the best example of that is when we look at oil and gas and energy and resources, which without a doubt at the beginning of the conflict was definitely the industry that I think I certainly had the most conversations with in terms of more advanced uh, detection and protection conversations, but also in terms of when we were looking at the numbers and the statistics around where the attacks and the, the attempts were, these were the markets where we were seeing the most. And I, I remember um, speaking to a sock provider, someone who provides sort of a, a, a managed sock service to the public sector, saying that they had something like an 800% increase uh, in the number of attempts on um, public sector networks in March last year, as an example. So we know that there has actually been some activity, particularly around that industry, as an example, but hasn't necessarily flowed through to massive cyber attacks. And I, I, I do think that is probably down to better defences. But also we have to remember the complexity of these networks. And I don't want to get into the, you know, the zeros and ones of what needs to be there and what isn't. Um, but but to be honest with you, it is incredibly difficult to to launch an attack, get through the different layers of defence and, and to, to achieve an action or objective that would lead to a large scale disruption. It is not impossible. It is absolutely what people are planning for. But I do think that planning, that foresight has helped mixed in with, as Stina said, I think the Ukrainian defence more broadly being more robust than initially expected. I think we all underestimated um, what they would be able to do. But I, that then has also, I think, been backed up by the fact that organisations generally have been in a better place. There, there have been a couple of places where we have seen some weakness. Um, one of the interesting things we've seen really develop over the last, I'd say, six months is uh, multi-factor authentication bypassing which is something that was talked about, not necessarily because of the conflict, but it just happened to be a technique that sort of appeared uh, in the last year in, in, in real terms. I mean, it's been, been around for a little while, but we started to see more of those types of attacks emerging on oil and gas or energy networks, um, which again, I think precipitated a, a more generic or commoditized approach to that kind of attack that we're seeing elsewhere across the market as well. We were surprised by, I think, certainly the Russians were surprised by by the ability of the Ukrainians to to slow down and stall some of these advances. And it's quite likely that from an offensive cyber positioning, uh, they were also surprised by this. But the, the other element to this is the reaction from the Western private sectors in order to support this. And this was particularly evident in the cloud space where, where a number of Ukrainian ministers very early on during a conflict sort of came up and said to the big cloud providers, we're going to need help moving stuff. So there is that aspect of the technological advances that have been occurring over the past five years have, have provided that extra resilience. But, but let me, let me, let me then ask both of you those questions. Um, actors have also developed their own resilience and, and, and we saw particularly the attack at the beginning of the conflict or just before the conflict on Viasat, that telecommunication network. Are we now creating, and is Ukraine a very good example of, it's very difficult to do one large boom, but if you do get into that critical network provider, to that critical cloud provider, critical telecommunications provider, or oil and gas, as you mentioned, Jay, um, is the impact so much more significant because of the fact that we're now hyper-reliant on these sort of very aggregated and centralized provision of technology services or infrastructure services? So, I mean, I'll, I'll take a stab, Stina, and then I'm sure you'll have much more eloquent things to say. But supply chain risk in that sense has, has been such a big focus in the last 12 months. And it's almost been agnostic of industry. I think what Ukraine, COVID, trade wars have taught companies over the last few years is you need to have better resiliency 
across all of your risks, but across your supply chain. And I think that sort of is coming to the heart of that question in terms of where businesses need to be looking, but also where they have started looking. The interesting thing about Viasat and and any kind of, I guess, satellite-based capability is you have very little redundancy. Yeah. Um, if, you know, if, if Starlink gets up and running and we've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of these, these satellites, perhaps maybe if one of them goes offline, we'll be okay. But the vast majority of that infrastructure does not operate in that way. And if you have a single point of failure in any kind of supply chain like that, then that can be really concerning. And that doesn't necessarily need to, necess- to necessarily be as advanced as satellite navigation or communication, but it can even be things such as controlling manufacturing processes. These things, which I think have often been overlooked as part of security mandates within businesses, and I think this is where it goes back to, they've been overlooked because they've sat somewhere within the manufacturing operation of an organization rather than part of a corporate network. It's quite a boring sort of split. It doesn't really sound that interesting, but I think has led to a lot of the issues that we've seen um, in the supply chain today. What I think has been positive though, particularly in the last two to three years, has been a much more focused attempt by businesses to identify those kind of orphaned machines, those, those operating systems that don't necessarily constitute your corporate network and actually integrating better security support around that. So I think the supply chain risk, unfortunately, is only going to get bigger. Um, but there is clearly signs that most large businesses now are taking a lot more of an in-depth look into the supply chain. They're doing things such as um, supply due diligence. But I think we're going to need to go beyond that. I think we're going to need to start to identify where the choke points are. Um, and it's only really by doing things such as wargaming and and really working across industries. So not just focusing on one business, but perhaps getting multiple people across your supply chain in a cyber exercise, for instance, to identify where those gaps exist and really pushing people on it. Because sometimes I feel when, when we when we have these kind of conversations with clients, often it's it's a veneer of of interest. Oh, it, yeah, but we would just but we would just do X and and it would all be fine. But it's when we get to that next level and we push down we go, "Well, okay, exactly how would we move from plant X to plant Y? Do we have a disaster recovery plan?" And that's where we almost get outside of just a cyber plan. You know, we're not just talking about having a better, more resilient network. We're then also talking about having all the other things that we'd expect a risk management team to have. So, I think those are some of the key things that we're seeing with supply chain. There's still some improvement, but that's definitely going to be a focus going forward. I think that's why it's so important to, you know, look at actually what has been unsuccessful as well in the in the context of Ukraine and think about what, you know, what could have been the impact. I think this is the type of scenario where actually the, the impacts are severe enough to keep this on the radar, even if there is stops at various stages, even if we don't see the intent necessarily to to launch this type of attack outside of Ukraine, at least not in this current current moment. But the potential impact, uh, both directly and indirectly on on kind of those that, that rely on these types of services could be so severe that saying that, you know, oh, we haven't seen it today, so therefore it is probably not a significant issue could be a, a bit of a trap. It- it's that loss, Dina. I think it's it's one that we talked about on, on previous podcasts, specifically looking at cyber criminality and extortive ransomware operations throughout the past 12 months. And, and a lot of organizations noticing uh, the, the sort of focus from some of the big, big groups in the conflict, or at least the theater of the conflict. And we have certainly kept warning companies that 
it's going to come back. Do, do not get fooled in thinking that the era of ransomware is over. Do not get fooled in thinking that, you know, your supply chain is now resilient because Ukraine was able to do it. Is that is that also what you're seeing, Jay, in terms of, of what you're dealing with on a day-to-day with some of our clients? Ransomware is a great example. So at the beginning of the conflict, you had a bit of a spike, to say the least, between February and March, I think, last year. And then it sort of dropped off the edge of a cliff. And for a lot of responders and affiliated organizations that support victims through this, we're all sort of scratching our heads thinking, where, where, where has this all gone? It can't all just be to do with the physical disruption. But that absolutely did have an impact. And then there were a lot of questions asked about, will this come back? But actually... It's a model that works for criminals. And ultimately, they're going to go through the path of least resistance. um, And it's still an effective model for many, many reasons. So we have seen it resurge back into the types of cases we're dealing with. I think that lull, as you mentioned, Nick, and that complacency, if we go as far to call it that, um, that complacency did exist, I think, for a little while with with some organisations. But I think it depends upon maturity and it depends on how... um, data-driven we try to be. Had a great conversation with some insurance companies recently, for instance, where we we were discussing the fact that actually cyber is a kind of area of, of intrigue. It doesn't really have a huge amount of data that you would typically associate with underwriting. So normally when you underwrite a risk, you look back 10, 20 years to understand what the trend is and then model your, your calculations on that. And therefore that determines your premium. But in the world of cyber, we don't have that. We've probably got five to seven years of decent data. And then anything beyond that, it's pretty sketchy, to be honest with you. So there is this kind of need for us to understand exactly what, you know, what's coming down the line at all times, but also a tendency for us to also be knee jerk, because if something changes, that could be the new norm or that could not be. And we're not quite sure exactly where that sits. So I think that, again, sort of complacency piece will continue to rear its head as things change post-Ukraine, but also there will be new things that emerge, new types of attacks. And I think it's just par for the course for us. Our role often when we work with clients is to not just think about what has happened in the last week or so or what the current trend is, but to really think about those broader pieces and think about, well, could we have a resurgence of double extortions again? Is that going to go away anytime soon? And, and honestly, right now, we're see, still seeing the same kinds of attacks that we were seeing before, albeit they are being deployed by different groups. They perhaps have slightly different methods. Even if you just look at the dark web forums in which these groups are operating on, there have been improvements in how they are communicating with their victims. We are seeing incremental changes, but in terms of you know the advice we have with clients, we've been, we've been briefing clients on ransomware for three, four years. It isn't going away as a topic. It's something they are keen on doing. And I think that's sensible because it's, it's one of those ones that's a big ticket item and it could be that sort of black swan event that really impacts an organization. So you've you've mentioned a lot of big things here, Jay. Uh, you've mentioned the word insurance and we're going to get onto the insurance point because I think that's been a recurring question of the impact of, of the Ukraine conflict for the longer term landscape is, is its impact on the insurance sort of community and, and importantly, the, the philosophy behind cyber insurance. But before we dive into this, you've also talked about, and Stina, I'd like to, to hear what you and the Intel team are, are sort of thinking about what's coming next. You've mentioned that, you know, we are seeing a resurgence or a return to the more traditional tactics on the extortive side because they work, but at the same time, new TTPs along, you know, you mentioned MFA bypassing, which is a great one because it's it's something we've told 
clients for many, many years, you know, put MFA in a place, it'll work. And it does work just, just for everyone's awareness, it works. But as with any technical control, we need finding a ways around them. But threat actors keep a remark that the board of a client organizations of ours made to me recently was, can we take the lessons of Ukraine and apply it to any future conflict in cyberspace? Um, so as you think about what's coming next, can you also sort of give us your take on, is this the new blueprint? Sanctions, disruption, extortion, politicization of technology and cyber? Or is it potentially risky to think we've dealt with Ukraine, we'll know how to deal with the next one? Yeah, if I if I start with that <laughs> with that minor minor question. I mean, I think there are things that other threat actors out there will learn. I think that's a key thing to remember that when we do see it next time, there will have been lessons learned on what to do, but also what not to do from there. So it will not be a blueprint from a threat actor perspective, which means that we should also not assume it will be a blueprint from from our perspective in terms of how to to deal with this and 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 manage it. I do think that there were expectations of how effective cyber would be that didn't get fulfilled on the battleground and I think that has also changed what we're what we're actually seeing. It will also depend on actually where where that happens and in, in in what shape it happens, I think. Um in terms of of what's what role cyber has to play, how capable are both the, the the kind of sides in that conflict and so forth. So there will be changes certainly. There are lessons to be learned um from from how it works. And we should definitely assume that the the threat actors we're dealing with in the next situation will also have learned those lessons. So that's not a very, very defined uh and easy answer. I do think it is important to to look at what we've what we've seen um, in quite a lot of detail in terms of what types of attacks have worked, how have they worked, and and kind of how has the response worked as well, which I think is a really critical part of that because there was very clear signaling early on, very early on, that any cyber attack that would be launched outside of the area of conflict would be considered an attack. And that in itself may have had a deterring effect as well on what we're seeing outside of, of the conflict. And and that's probably one of one of the major takeaways that we were able to see very early on in the conflict was the positioning by NATO around what could constitute a trigger to the mutual defense treaty or the clauses in the articles. And then this had been historically in our field, certainly something that I remember speaking about 10 years ago of when will we see a cyber attack lead to war? Uh, we have certainly seen cyber attacks as political tools, as, as tools of, of criminality and as tools of activism for sure. But, but that, that was probably the most overt signal that came into the public sphere to say the game has changed slightly. And again, we are teeing up our insurance conversation, but we will come back yeah. to it because no, this is important. Go ahead, Stina. Yeah, as a, as a point on that, I think one of the reasons, because there had been statements prior to it, putting cyber within that kind of Article 5 umbrella. I think what made this kind of different is that there is a very concrete situation here. There is a very kind of real chance or, or a real risk that this may actually happen, that someone will, you know, that 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 we will see those type of retaliatory attacks that we were talking about early on as well, where it's much more directed 
towards someone outside of Ukraine in terms of sending signals and so forth. I think that has also brought another level to it in that it is now very much linked to this particular conflict, which means that anything that does happen will be scrutinized. And, you know, if that can be linked back, there will be severe consequences of that. So I think that has really stepped up. We'll be right back to the podcast. If you want to hear more from our experts like Diane and Stina on the war in Ukraine and its long-term implication on the security and risk landscape, go to www.controlris.com where you will find all of our latest analysis. And now back to the podcast. Jay, interested to, to hear your take on this in terms of the the tactical and operational implications of the war. I mean, you, you've mentioned the, the MFA bypassing and this, this sort of new era in terms of some of the complexity of the tactics, although in principle, they remain fairly similar to what we've been seeing for decades. Is there anything else on the ground that you're noticing in the cases that we're dealing with or in even the level of maturity of the organizations that are victims and and the way they deal with these cases that can sort of feel quite tangibly coming out of the past 12 months that we've lived through. Yeah, I think in terms of the attack types themselves, the TTPs, you're right, Nick, they, to a large extent, they've stayed pretty constant since before the conflict. The difference is the targeting and perhaps, you know, exactly who they're going after. One of the things I think gets underreported in all of this, because we're so focused on um, the conflict in Ukraine is how the wider contextual narrative of essentially how global politics is playing out now and how more nationalistic governments are becoming around key industries, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore IP theft and even corporate espionage is is still bubbling away, but also perhaps even more important now than ever in terms of the discussions that we have going forward. And I think that that for me has been a really interesting angle to this because it's not just about thinking about the obvious, which is you've got a war going on. Is there going to be cyber warfare that's going to knock out, you know, critical utilities, et cetera. But it's also thinking about, well, this war has exposed, I think, the the reliance of certain countries on particular energy supply chains. It's really transformed businesses' views on energy and resources and renewables, and it's making arguably certain countries much more self-reliant on that in the long term, which has huge implications for global supply chains, et cetera, et cetera. And so what we worked with a few clients on is helping to identify and protect the key IP that will enable them to essentially do well in those markets and not be caught up in the wildfire as you have a competitor pop up somewhere half around, halfway around the world doing the same thing for cheaper or in a slightly more advanced way. And I think in the West, this has been a really important conversation because things that perhaps were um, completely normal as part of a global supply chain has now have now started to decouple. So even when we look at things such as connections to Asia and flat networks between com- within companies themselves, the number of conversations I've had of sort of countless in the last year of, of chief information security officers asking us, how can we decouple? maintain our culture because we want it to be open. We want people to collaborate across borders, but we do feel that there is a a local concern, even within, from an insider perspective, to um, potentially have some kind of industrial espionage, IP theft, et cetera. And I think this is one of the stories that sort of gets a little bit underreported because of what's going on. Um, And I guess it's also linked to the fact that, being, being honest, I feel a lot of news outlets are much more comfortable with attribution to Russia these days and making things a state 
estate attribution overnight. And we've seen that recently with a couple of cases, not naming names, yep. but it, you know, it, it is, it is something that is drawing the attention away from, I think there is a, that sort of global geopolitical play that's challenging large organizations that are going to be the transformative industries in the future, particularly within Europe, for instance, to look at their security differently and where the threats are coming from, because they're not always that sort of symmetric nation state threat. They can come sometimes come from the inside and from competitors as well. Stina, I know you're, you're, you want to add to this, but I just wanted to anecdotally flag that one of our largest clients has recently updated some of their risk analysis. And, and, and one of the top things featuring now systematically is insider risks. And, and I think it's, it's almost paradoxical in some ways where we've been talking about globalization and you can go back to call it the splinternet, the great fragmentation. And, and we have published about this for many, many risk maps. Our risk map um, titled this year was The Death of Global Networks. Dina knows because she's been touring many of our clients to talk about this over and over again. Um, but the the point being, one of the paradox of that, that sort of breakdown in these global structures is also, we're going back to a lot of proximity. And I just want to draw a parallel that I find interesting around the advent of edge computing, which is increasingly becoming a big topic of conversation, is a hyper-localization of virtual and physical resources. So we're thinking about insiders as a purely physical thing. There is the digital insider that has access to parts of our networks that are more challenging to monitor because we're moving away from those centralized networks. But Stina, I, I kind of wanted to bring you back in here in terms of kind of building on what Jay was saying there. I think it's such a good point. And as well, almost a kind of secondary impact or, or, or you know, what we've seen caused by, by the conflict more broadly around the energy insecurity, the energy crisis, which is going to be such an important driver for, for at least from kind of a threat perspective. It will be multifaceted to, to all the points that Jay was making, but also in terms of just why is this such a critical industry? There will be a political motivation to understand where are states taking this, who's going to be the next player, particularly in the green transition, in, in the kind of replacing certain sources, particular Russian sources of, of, of energy, and as well as that kind of commercial component of, of kind of grasping those opportunities. And I think you know, when when listening to some of our colleagues um, that that look at this from that kind of geopolitical perspective and what they're expecting, particularly in terms of energy, you know, this was a little bit of a, the easy winter, and the next one is the one that's going to really hit home. I'm hoping I'm not I'm not paraphrasing wrongly there, but this is going to get worse. Also, in in the domains we're talking about here, in terms of of uh, those threat actors, the risk that that these companies face where they sit in such an absolutely critical part of the geopolitical trends. You know, I agree that it is kind of part of that underreported, you know, next steps of yeah. what does this conflict actually cause in terms of, of, of impacts on, on business. And and I think it's it's so difficult to always look. I mean, the, the the war is still raging on the ground, and certainly the outcomes of the war and the consequences of the war are very likely to be unknown for a number of years. Uh, and again, I'm sure Chuck, Oksana, and Claudine will come and and hunt me down if I've if I've also misparaphrased paraphrased them. But at the 
the question of the very long-term impact, I think, is one that, that will be incredibly difficult to unravel. And, and Jay, you made a parallel with, with COVID and the pandemic. And I think certainly in our space, these, these two events are massive accelerators of trends that pre-existed them. But in some ways, that acceleration is very difficult to predict in terms of practical impact. And you look at this coupled with the very significant strides are being made, you know, we're not going to do a podcast or maybe we will on chat GPT, but you know, eh, that's personal. I know that's, uh, um, it'll be a bit of a nerd fest for, for a couple of hours and we'll probably all get very angry with one another. But the, the point being, you, you have these huge leaps and strides that are being made sometimes in theory, sometimes in practice in the technological spheres. And, and this does create a level of uncertainty and, instability that I think is going to be very primordial. But we could talk about this for hours on end. I want to come back to the word that Jay brought up. And so if anybody gets annoyed, it's not my fault. Jay did it. Um, Jay, you talked about insurance. It is a topic that continues to come up. And especially with some of the drastic changes that we've seen on the outcome of WannaCry, and, and some of the big decisions that came on the back of WannaCry, but now very specifically since the beginning of the conflict in Ukraine. Can you, and we will have a much longer conversation about this, but can you give us your sense right now of what you're seeing in the industry and where the pain points are going to be? Huge topic. I'll, I'll try and be brief. Um, fundamentally, it's getting a lot harder to get insurance. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One of the main ones during the the Ukrainian conflict has been Lloyd's providing underwriting guidance to insurers around um, war risk and exclusions around that, and that now trickling into policies that are being written for insured, so those who are out there buying insurance. And, and looking at the Ukrainian conflict, what that's showing us is the difficulty in attribution, number one, and therefore the difficulty potentially of getting a claim paid out if there were to be an attack on you that happened to be linked to a group that may or may not be, or more likely may have been linked to the Russian state, as an example, right? So that 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 issue sat for a while. It's something that a lot of people within the cyber industry have been throwing around, trying to understand more and more. But whilst we're theoretically thinking about how to attribute, and I think we still don't have an answer on exactly how easy it is to do, but I'll make that point again, that I think a lot of people are jumping now, but much easier and much more or with that, with fewer barriers to the idea that, you know, this is a, a Russian campaign, for instance, but I'm sure we'll talk about that at, at another point. Um, but what we, what we haven't necessarily seen with all of this is that the idea that locally companies are, are growing their understanding and maturity enough of the insurance market so that they can make good decisions. There are organizations that are they tend to be larger that have got, you know, a dedicated insurance manager, someone who's watching those markets very closely, who are still struggling to understand how they can have an effective insurance program that genuinely protects them against um, the attacks. And a lot of that's down to, as I say, those exclusions and, and concerns around certain companies being a large tar target or not, and therefore either not getting insurance or being too expensive. But then also for others, it's just about getting the right fit for them. And my advice to to any any leader who talks to us about this, and I get the question, you know, what, what should we do about insurance or is this a good insurance product? First of all, we, we're not here to sell insurance. I can't so possibly ever future say whether it's- Maybe maybe that's where I go. Um, you know, they all look very happy around Leadenhall. Um, but, but 
the, the the main thing I say is I think businesses need to have a much more um, and it's this horrible consulting word, holistic approach to looking at their their insurance, ticking the bingo there. Um, but but the the idea being that if we're looking for one product that's going to solve this problem because in our minds it's a single issue problem, I think we're getting it wrong. Cyber insurance today, I think, stands a lot more, especially for medium to large organizations, as a type of product that supports getting the right sort of expertise alongside you to respond. But the other costs associated with, you know, restoring, um, recovering, all those kinds of things may need to come from elsewhere. So, so my advice is always speak to your brokers, speak to your risk managers. Don't do this in a silo just within cyber, because it is actually something that needs an enterprise-wide response and an enterprise-wide understanding of what that insurance market looks like. But that's going to get more contentious. It's not going to get less. We know that the market's hardened. We know that businesses need to have a much wider view of what they do and don't want. And it's also led to businesses looking at self-insuring. So actually holding cash within the business, keeping it liquid for a rainy day, in essence, to self-insure against these issues, meaning they don't have to pay the premiums, but they feel like they've got some level of coverage. But that really depends on your organization, where you think the risk is going to come from and therefore where it's going to fall out. So it's tumultuous times, I'd say, for buyers of insurance. Um, but but I think also to some extent, and I hope this is the case, but this is more of a prediction than anything else, there will be a normalization at some point. Um, there's been a huge correction in the market because of all the ransomware attacks that have happened, the payouts around um, extortive payments, et cetera. And so the market's hardened, but we will hopefully over the long term start to see a softening in various places, not everywhere, that will get us to a baseline that people start to know and understand much better than than there is. It's just a bit of pain right now. Well, Jay, thank you. This this was an excellent primer, and I could listen to you talking about this for hours on end. But but if anybody is interested in getting more information on this particular topic, Jay, I think you've recently published an article that's on our .com or will soon be on our .com. And certainly there's a host of, of thought leadership that you've you've worked on in the past, including working with with some of our, our partners in the legal sector to sort of talk about what the future of this, this space would be. I want to take us moving um, a, a little bit into the future and in specifically into the future of where we see disruption in our space. You know, we've touched on the edges of, of sort of the lessons learned. And I think, Jay, your point on, on sort of the paradox of the pace of attribution has been really interesting. And I hadn't thought about this, but when I started writing for a CTI team 10 years ago now, um, I remember we we had the hardest time going through attribution. We still do sort of rigorously trying to attribute. And today you open up the front pages and you've got people talking about APT, you know, APT, 29, and you've got people talking about um, very specific intelligence groups within within a state apparatus. Um, part of this is probably a factor of the point on data, where, where where the body of knowledge around cyber is growing day by day. Part of this is clearly a, a better level of acceptability in terms of getting it wrong, and I think that's that's a big challenge in the CTI community. Certainly, I think in in terms of what organizations need to be able to do on the attributions point, and certainly on the response side. But I want to get your takes on what you would see as the next phase of this conflict, not necessarily on the ground, but rather the next cyber phase of this conflict, or, or what is going to be the one thing that we haven't touched on that we should expect from threat actors drawing from the lessons of the war in Ukraine. 
So I think again, Stina, I'll go first, um, first into the breach, but I think unfortunately, Nick, I don't think it's a Hollywood answer. I think the point is that we're probably going to see much of the same. What I, I do think we'll probably start to see is, is more of an acceleration of, um, the tactics, techniques and procedures of, of state organizations falling into criminal hands and, and that becoming much more commoditized and, and leveraged much faster. Um, in part to keep up with the defences and the, the speed at which now businesses are able to update their defences and make sure that they're ready to, to to take on what comes. So I think we're we're, we're going to naturally see that. And we, I think you know if there was a chart that was you know charting how quickly we've been able to start adopting new security standards, etc., we'll generally see an increase. I don't think we're there yet. This, we're still miles behind. It's still so hard to have an asset register that's that's up to date, let alone having a you know a working detection and response capability. But but nevertheless, you know we we we, we forge on. And I think, but I do think that sort of trickle down is going to be something that we see. I, I don't think we should take our eyes off of the disruptive element of this. We know the tactics and tools are there to launch these kinds of attacks. Often it's a matter of time, persistence and focus from a threat actor to put those tools into the right place to cause damage. And as we get better at securing the supply chain, it doesn't mean that these attacks aren't going to happen. It doesn't mean it makes them much more difficult, but it does mean I think the lead time from intrusion to actually you know, hitting the big red button may take a little bit longer, which would be a good thing for the market if that's what starts to happen. But I don't think, I think we've been quite positive actually in this podcast about, you know, companies defensives and what i don't want people to think necessarily is that oh yeah cyber's been fixed now we're not going to be any issues point is actually yes we're making the right steps but criminals are moving so quickly it's a really important point because when something that we hear a lot when we we talk to executives and, and boards is you guys keep telling us that we're bad at, at this and you keep telling us we need to spend more money i think the point you're making here is important it, it's really yes these investments have paid off in dealing with a particular aspect of the threat, but the reality is the world continues to move on. And so, you know, without getting into, again, the, the fun ones and zeros of standards, uh, you know, you may have scored a four out of five on your NIST assessment last year. It doesn't mean you're going to be a four out of five next year because the world around you is moving. So that's that continuous investment piece. I just want to call you out because you're essentially telling us we're going to have a shadow brokers V2 um, come down. And I still remember the day that happened and then arriving in the office to one of our analysts who had uh, proceeded on our, on our distributed research network to download the GitHub repo that had absolutely all the alleged NSA tools on there and was tinkering around with it. And I nearly had three heart attacks and, and one fell swoop. Is that, is that, Stina, is that something that you're anticipating as well? That, that trickling down effect? Is this something that you've started seeing from an Intel perspective in the groups, the discussions where people are looking at? What we have seen and what's, again, a trend that has been present for some time, but that really has accelerated is that kind of overlap between the different types of, of threat actor groups. So, you know, state groups using uh, criminal tools that kind of overlap getting much more to to the tactical level and you know particularly when we look at the role that proxy actors have played and and where we see some of those patterns of overlap between again state um groups targeting a certain organization and then a follow-up activity of some form from from either um a criminal group or from from one of the the plethora of, of patriotic activist groups that we've seen 
get engaged um, in in this conflict. You know that type of overlap. That that's something that we'll definitely see see more of. And again, it's it's a means to to achieve an objective without necessarily triggering that very strong response. That aspect of it is really important, I think, to the point around attribution as well, and and the challenges that that businesses face in this is that. You know, we do have groups that have aligned themselves either very openly or that that have shown signs within their targeting what they're doing that, you know, there is a potential geopolitical um, driver, at least part of, of, of that. So that kind of interconnection and, and, and overlapping between geopolitical and, 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 and more financially motivated activity. I think one of the key things to be prepared for and to, to monitor for is cyber activity will kind of continue to follow very closely what's happening on the ground. And I think there are scenarios there that we can imagine where, you know, we've talked about this now, if you have the capability to disrupt something using um, kind of conventional weaponry, you may not rely as heavily on, on cyber, that may be a supplementary, um, supplementary method. If we're starting to see that this becomes more difficult, either because of, of you know, the winter months and, and the kind of um, lull in, in activity related to that, or if it becomes a resource issue in terms of having access to to these types of, of weapons. You know, one of the things to think about then is the, the cyber angle to this, because that is still one that is available and that, that doesn't necessarily rely on, on access to, to those supply routes. Then it becomes about what is the strategic objective here, which is disrupting kind of critical infrastructure in 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 Ukraine disrupting the response and disrupting the counter offensives and i think you know there were reports in in december around kind of a resurgence or an uptick again in in wiper malware attacks targeting um ukraine so again you know it's it's early to say based on where we are in the conflict as well whether that's a a key trend that we can kind of extrapolate and say this is you know, how it will, will ebb and flow. But I think that is a really important one to, to keep an eye on going forward. I don't think this is necessarily linked to Ukraine specifically, but it's I think it's very, very likely given where we are in terms of security industry is just having obscene amounts of security fatigue within your organization. Because I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, um, bypassing multi-factor authentication. That was heralded as this kind of control to end all controls and it would stop a lot of attacks. And um, we, we all had high hopes, but you, you can kind of see the pain on the face of the CEO when you say, by the way, you know, that thing that, you know, you thought was infallible. Yeah, people can bypass that. And, you know, the bypass isn't necessarily always a really super technical thing. Sometimes it's just, again, a human human weakness. The issue is going to get more complex. We know the targeting is going to get much more um, much more complex in terms of technical prowess to do it and the capability is going to increase. But at the same time, I do think within businesses, particularly from a security culture perspective, even though there have been improvements that have made, there's still a need to fight the good fight and also to think about the new attacks that are coming down the line. And, and one of the challenges I think that CISOs will be facing going forward is how do we keep the motivation within the business there to, to start seeing the new issues and adjusting rather than saying, well, our wall's big enough now, so we should be fine, right? And and, and it's a perennial issue for, for CISOs, but I do think that's going to be a bigger issue in the, in the years to come. It's a, it's a really important point. And, and Stina, I, I, I just just bouncing back on what Jay was saying here, if you are 
a CISO or if you are working in a security function right now and having to brief your leadership, you also have to bear in mind the amount of different things they are currently dealing with. As we're talking about this digital conflict, there's a physical conflict, there are inflationary problems, there are energy problems, there are still pandemic-related issues, there are global supply chain issues. And I think it is so quick to go to these discussions saying, well, look, it's evident that because we now have people doing MFA bypass or because we now have a new TTP, we need to completely overhaul the way we do our technology stack and infrastructure. It is completely normal for these executives who do not necessarily spend as much time in this field to ask the question, do we really need to do this and does it need to happen now? Because that 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 sort of bandwidth has, has become so, so rarefied and it, it's incumbent, I think, on all of us as we talk about these issues. You know, you said, Jay, that it's unusual for us to be positive and it's true in some sense, but I actually think to what Stina said at the very beginning of this, the pleasant discovery or at least the, the silver lining in our space of this war was the fact that the resilience and the preparedness that Ukraine public-private infrastructure had done worked. And it worked probably to a greater effect than we had all anticipated and they, probably they anticipated. Guys, I want to thank you. We're coming to time. We could talk about this for an extra two hours very easily, but we're, we're going to wrap things up. And I just wanted to to say, first of all, a huge thank you to Stina for you to be back on the podcast yet yet again. You're, you're going to be back. We have a few topics that I've made a note of here based on the conversation that we need to go back through. But it's always a great pleasure to have you, Stina. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. It was, uh, it was a very good discussion. Yeah, and we're, we'll continue that discussion offline for sure. And and obviously, Jay, it's it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. We're going to have you back. There's there's definitely a topic on insurance that we need to to go into more depth about. I'm sure all of our listeners will love to to hear about this. But I think, especially from your experience of dealing with what organizations are actually responding to, uh, it's it's fantastic to have your insight and a real pleasure to have you with us today. Oh, it's been a pleasure it's all been mine, Nick. Thank you. We have a whole host of episodes coming soon to Decrypt, covering the most crucial topics, breaking news, and strategic horizon scanning within the world of cyber that you need to be aware of. With analysis and discussion from our experts located around the world, subscribe to Control Risks Decrypt as we help you make sense of the cyber and technology issues impacting your business. For more information on how we can help you build a resilient, compliant, and secure organization realizing the benefits of technology, visit us at www.controlrisks.com. And remember, our experts are only ever one email away. Email us at cyber at controlrisks.com.